from WBEZ Chicago and the destiny you resist. This is Pleasure Town. Around the turn of the last century, a group of folk built their dream, a town where happiness was the main objective. But all great epics are built on failure. So lend an ear and join us as we atone for Pleasure Town. People are want to mark anniversaries. Shows progress. Points to achievement. Speak for yourself, old Cy. I've never been one for anniversaries. Why look over your shoulder when there's a pint right in front of you? <laughs> Maybe that's why our 25th came and went with not so much as a toast. Can't blame our people for missing it. They barely knew when it was Tuesday. Besides, didn't see much reason to celebrate. Town had started to turn sour, if you ask me. But, as you all well know, what Clyde finds sour, I tend to savor. The sour taste in Claude's mouth was a new wave of people. Our first wave of residents were chock full of grit, hardened by a rough and tumble life. But once we got our feet under us, my people showed up. Painters, poets, philosophers, and other intellectual outlaws. Outlaws? (laughs) You soil the word with your tongue. These folks were all brains and no balls. Bunch of baby chicks walking to a wolf's den. Being all brains ain't a bad thing, friend. As you'll recall, Pleasure Town lured one mind that was more powerful than any gun. Mama said she knew I had the curse from the time I started growing inside her. She'd have to be really connected to a person holding their hand tightly or squeezed up next to them in a crowded street or somewhere. And the visions were murkier, since they weren't really hers, they were mine. But still, she saw. She said they stopped completely the minute she pushed me out of herself, and and that she was relieved. I'd be relieved, too. I'd do almost anything to deliver this curse out of me. She said, Angie... Those nine months of my life were the scariest ones for seeing what I saw. I worry about how you're going to fare on this earth, my girl. None of Mama and Daddy's other kids has it. Not a grandparent or so much as an uncle. My sister Mary. She says it's a gift I should be proud of. That I'm special. But that's because I've only ever seen beautiful things for Mary. A perfect life. She's the special one. And she knows it. Daddy never talked to me much, and when he did, he'd always just nod and look at Mama afterwards as if to say, You want me to put it in a bag and take it down to the river, Mother? I see the good like Mary's round babies and Mama's easy passing at a very old age. 
But I see the rest too. I knew Daddy would leave one day, maybe because of me. I knew when my brother Samuel would find himself in a whole mess of trouble with the law. When I was very young and started going to the schoolhouse, there was this little girl with golden ringlets and a pink taffeta dress. I don't recall her name now, but I watched her playing outside before class one day. And then I saw her in flashes with that pink dress torn open, a single one of her pretty black lace-up shoes tossed in a field, ringlets looking deranged from having been pulled at so hard. I told her what would happen and that it would be someone she knew that she needed to find help. She slapped me hard, that little girl, clear across the face, and said, what did a trashy thing like me know about her family anyway? She was right. She wasn't in any danger. She grew up just fine, I'm sure. I like to imagine she grew up with a penchant towards beautiful small gowns and an inability to control herself around tea cakes. We all have our curses. She's one of the lonely few I've ever been wrong about. It was before I honed the skill, if that's what you want to call it. Anyway, it was before I knew that I could look into one person's eyes and see a different person's fate. If those people happened to be twins. I stayed home after that. I was asked not to come back to school once it came out about me predicting the truth about what would happen to that poor little girl. I helped Mama with the little ones after Daddy left. It kept mostly quiet inside my head. I read everything I could and taught myself based on Mary and Samuel's old primers. People scowled at me when I'd come into town for the shopping. Acted all scared and holier than thou. So you think you can tell the future? What, just by touching someone's arm? They would laugh and mock me. Although once in a while I'd catch an imploring face cutting through the mean one. A face that begged, tell me, tell me. But I never would because terrible people like that, well... They don't deserve my help, and they're better off not knowing anyhow. Sometimes on my way home from town, I'd pass by that old schoolhouse, and I'd feel like I was reaching out for it with every fiber of my body. Then I'd just, you know, just keep on walking by. Mama had to hire a boy from town to help with the things you need a daddy at the house for. Lifting and carrying, patching and repairing. I don't think you're as strange as they say, he whispered to me one morning out in the yard. He winked at me and tipped his hat, then walked away. The hairs on my neck stood at attention as I tapped into his future, which was clouded by something. My own desire, I guess. There were sweat-soaked legs and sounds, moaning sounds his hands, and a beautiful woman. Well, truth be told, a series of beautiful women. I searched and searched, but none of them were me. Visions aren't like daydreams. You can't insert yourself into a future that's not meant for you. 
I was in town one day, minding my own, when I heard a big commotion along the main street. I ran over to find my own youngest brother being held at the collar by a grim-faced old man who was well-known for both his massive amount of money and his tight hold on it. Where is it, you scoundrel? Where is it? Now, I'm fiercely protective of the innocent and the children, especially when it's my own kin, so... Before I even knew what had come over me, I was grabbing the man's long, cold hand from around my brother and shaking him free. You put him down, you hear? The man stepped back at first with surprise when he saw me. Then he got his bearings. I might have known this little thief would be connected to you. It was the way he said, you. So loaded and full of venom. A crowd had gathered. He doesn't have anything of yours, I said. This little brother wasn't like Samuel. He had problems awaiting him in life, but none of them were with the law. In fact, most of them came from being too generous, too trusting. I had a vision then of a lean, red-faced woman, her shaking hand wrapped tightly around a small pouch of coins. I knew she was in the crowd, I'd like to say she planned to use the coins to feed her family or something noble, but the visions led me straight up the road to the tavern. I could see her standing at the back door, handing over the coins to the barman who counted them slowly, then reluctantly handing over a bottle of diluted whiskey. And then the old man spoke, shaking me free from my vision. I had a small bag of coins. Not much to me, but a fortune to the likes of one of you. They're gone, they're pickpocketed by this boy. The crowd had grown to watch the scene. I scoured their faces for the ruddy-faced woman, but by then, assured that the blame had been sufficiently passed, she was almost halfway up the road to her sad destination. It wasn't him. Please, I know who it was. Oh, do tell us. Did you perhaps have a psychic vision that explained it all to you? The crowd laughed. They laughed at me. I realized for the first time what they must think. I had done nothing more than tried to hide my curse. Anytime I spoke about it, it was merely to protect them. And this is how they saw me. Yes, I did. I suppose you think it was one of the fine people of this town that took it then. I suppose that's what your vision told you. Tell me, young lady, why one of these people would do that? These are my friends. They respect me and my place among them, which is more than I can say for, for well, your entire family, I suppose. That's a lot of supposing. I could feel the flashes of fire scorching my cheeks from my embarrassment and rage. And I told them right then and there all the things I was supposing would happen to them in the not-too-far-away future. The affairs, the deaths, the unwanted children, the heartaches and headaches and dysfunction, the secrets in the jail time and the bankruptcies. I told them all. Everything I knew and had known about them for years. The things that they had been too afraid to ask. Too afraid to even ask themselves. All of it poured out of me, words on top of other strong, sad words, 
till I was saying it all at once in a garbled, mangled gibberish. They weren't laughing. They were staring, horrified at me and what they knew but would never admit were the truths rushing out of me. When the exorcism of visions ended, I was on my knees and fell silent among them. I heard the breeze. I heard a songbird. I heard a footstep in the dusty road, and when I turned my head, it was the child, my own brother, backing slowly away from me. Serpent! Serpent! The last voice was of a young woman. Demon! A woman my age. We could have been friends. We could have walked with our arms linked, gazing in shop windows if I had been born any other way. But instead, this. Demon! I didn't need the curse, the gift, the skill to show me where this would lead. What life would be like among these people now, for my family or for me. I scooped up the little one and ran as fast as I could towards home. She's taken a child! A child who has my money! The shouting and the accusations mixed with prayers made hastily out of fear faded away as I ran faster till there was nothing but the sound of the wind rushing by. Angie's a witch, the little one declared, hiding behind Mama's swishing skirts. Is not. She's special said the ever-blissful Mary, not looking up from her sewing. But Mama looked at me hard as I panted in the doorway, begging for my breath to catch. I caught sight of a sparkle in her eye. Teardrop. But only for a second before she reached out and grabbed my hand. I've been wondering when this day might come. What do we do, Mama? We're going to stay right here. But you, honey, you're going to go on. It's what's safest for us all. With that, she opened the closet and handed me a small packed bag. There's some money in there. Not much, but some. I've been saving for this day. Mary looked up bewildered. Mama kissed my cheek and held my head to hers. I heard her hiccup down a budding sob, then she pulled her face from mine and led me to the door. Go on now, and hurry. I was standing on the front porch, holding the bag. Mama was standing inside, with the warmth and the other children. Why, Mama? And she shut the door between us. I took the money from inside the bag and used... Most of it to buy a train ticket. I had no idea where to go. If this town couldn't accept me for who I was, which place could? I searched my mind a moment until I saw a vision of myself walking along a pretty road toward a schoolhouse, followed by a line of children. Although the skies looked gray in this vision, I knew I was finally happy. I waited for a name to come to me, and when it did, my vision showed the skies opening and pouring down rain on all the children. I saw myself running towards the schoolhouse, 
The vision disappeared and I turned slowly back to the ticket again. Pleasure Town, I say cautiously. He raised an eyebrow and tells me they don't go into Pleasure Town, but he can get me one town over where I can easily walk the rest of the way. I tell him that'll be just fine and handed over the money. The ticket agent held my gaze and handed me the ticket. As I tried to take it, he pulled back momentarily, creating a tiny tug of war. Then, after a small, crude bite on his lower lip, he let go tells me to enjoy myself there. Pleasure Town will return in a moment. Angie was so good at seeing stuff, she should have known better than to hang around. Pleasure Town was full of all kinds of troubled souls. You know good and well most other communities would have burned her at the stake. Well, that may be true, but she sat on those visions, kept them bottled up. Sure, she eventually shared them, but not before so many had to suffer. Not before salvation was out of reach. I miss Mama. But here in Pleasure Town, I have a purpose. I have friends. We walk with our arms linked down the roads and gaze into shop windows together. And that alone means everything to me. It's a small community, and when they caught wind of the fact that I was both self-educated and a natural with children, they'd ask if I'd mind doing the one thing I'd always dreamt of doing. Teaching. No, I wouldn't mind that at all, I said. The sheriff volunteered a little house to serve as the school. Seems as if the owner, Goldie, went missing a few weeks back. Now each day I lead the small group of children towards the schoolhouse. We stop to discuss different types of clover and berries we spot along the way. Once in a while, when there is rain or the pressure of a gray, stormy sky, I remember the vision I had in the train station of the children running, and I feel an uneasiness that I I can't quite explain. Most days, however, everything feels right, and despite the loneliness I feel at times that comes from being outside one's own family circle, it's a good life here for me in Pleasure Town. I decide to come clean about my curse gift with the good doctor. I'm hopeful he might offer me some enlightenment or preferably some medication to help me deal with the visions. After explaining my situation and my reason for leaving home, the doctor looks at me doubtfully. I've been met with fear and mockery in my past, but never disbelief. Normally the visions just come. I don't have much control over them. But shall I look ahead for you and... See what I find, Doctor? He has to believe me. I'm willing to do anything for his help. No, no, that won't be necessary, says the doctor, suddenly blushing. But the vision comes on its own. 
the doctor in this very office entangled with another man, with that reporter who came to Pleasure Town years earlier. I see them together. I understand. Unsure of how we will respond, I tell the doctor what I've seen and I assure him that my secret and those of the residents of Pleasure Town are probably best left unspoken. That I won't repeat what I've seen to anyone. I get up and leave and the doctor looks at me with curiosity. He puts his hand in my arm. Are you able to look again, Angie? Are you able to look a little closer? Privacy and personal choice. We value that here, but my visions of the doctor wash over me again and I feel as though I'm peeking in a window or thumbing through a diary. I do as the doctor asked, and I'll look closer at the vision. I see the doctor's slender hand running through the hair of the reporter. I hear the feminine way his voice responds to the reporter's weight against his body. I see a flash of something in his eyes, and I recognize something familiar. You're a woman, I say, still taking it in. The doctor pulls me in closer. I'm lost at sea. It's like trying to navigate a course without having any idea of what destination you are aiming for, she whispers. And I see tears start to rise. Without knowing why, I reach out and touch her face, as though the final proof will be in the softness of her skin. All at once, she reminds me both of my loving sister Mary and of the boy Mama hired for doing the chores after Daddy left. Despite her ambiguity, I can't help but notice that the doctor stirs up in me feelings of home. She finally allows the tears to fall, and in each one I can see the rain. I can see the storm. I can see us sitting together, just like this, holding on to one another tightly as we are washed away. I can think of nothing more wonderful or less interesting than being a school teacher. So I'm surprised to see the reporter waiting outside the schoolhouse one morning as the children and I approach. As you can see, I'm busy right now, I say while passing the reporter. We need to talk. I close the door behind me, and then the vision begins. I see the reporter standing in the school. Smoke curls around him. I can almost smell it. First, it's just the pant leg on fire, and then the leg. He screams, and the sweat pouring from his face gives him the appearance of Milton. His body melts together and absorbs his clothes and smoke and ash until he isn't more than a large, dusty smudge on the floor. Truly, it will only take a moment. Come out here. He calls out from behind the door. I turn around, and the school is empty. Children? No, it's, it's a vision. I shut my eyes, and when I open them, everything is ablaze. There is a steady rain overhead and deafening thunder. Children? 
I shut my eyes again, and this time, when I open them, there is nothing more than piles of embers and muddy ash. A figure in a long wool coat stands in the ruin holding a match. Children, I yell as I close my eyes one last time. When I come to, I'm on the floor. I know that I've been yelling. I look into the face of a child, and he stares back at me with the same fear I saw on the face of my little brother the day of the incident back home. A moment later, one of the older children enters with the reporter. There she is, see, says the child. I think she needs the doctor. I see the reporter coming towards me. The visions are gone, and for now, so is my strength. Once again, I slip into the darkness. I wake up, and I'm on my knees, begging the Lord to take away the ability to create or see such terrible things. I think of the young girl with the ringlets found in the field while her matching sister played in the schoolyard. I think of the red-faced woman reaching her hand into the old man's pocket for a bag of coins. For a moment, I think of Mary, her beautiful children, her beautiful life. I think of all the children in the school in Pleasure Town. So innocent. So much potential. My candle blows out and I realize that I'm in the doctor's home and that it's late. It's so late. It's, it's too late. I know he's brought me there, the reporter. And I know he's still there. And I know we have a little ways to go, the three of us before any of this makes any sense at all. But the doctor rushes in when she hears me stirring, and she sits next to me on the bed. Your candle's out, Angie, she says with a smile while lighting a match. She holds it lit between us for a moment. I can hear the faint sound of thunder and the water rushing in. But for now, there's still time. There's still us. I remember Daddy looking at me in fear. I remember Mama pushing me out the door that night. I remember it all as I take her hand and I blow out the match. See what I mean, Cy? She knew about the fire. Yeah, she did, but at the time, she thought her sight was certain, unavoidable. But maybe we could have done something. You and me, Si. We were too busy fighting each other, or fighting ourselves. And besides, the role of savior wasn't ours to play. everyone thank you again for listening to pleasure town this is aaron this is keith and as always we are all over the internet you can find us on facebook by searching for pleasure town twitter it's pleasure town okay and our website is pleasure and we have something extra extra special for you 
post episode seven. It is get ready for it. Huh? Write an episode of Pleasure Town contest. Yes. Excellent. The contest encourages writers and storytellers and fans to submit their own scripts to be produced by the Pleasure Town team. We're looking for anything from a, a five minute flash fiction, perhaps just a, a character with a developed story, uh, to a fully fleshed out 20 minute episode. Episodes that win this contest will be uh, featured between the seasons of Pleasure Town. Season one wraps December 12th, season two starts sometime in 2015. And these episodes will be uh, in between there, sort of like a, a mini arc, a webisode, if you will, except everything that we do is on the web. So it's a web webisode. But that makes no sense. For more details on that, uh, once again, you can visit PleasureTownShow.com slash join the story. We really, really are looking forward to your submissions. If you have questions, feel free to email us at PleasureTownShow at gmail.com. And we are on the iTunes, actually. Uh, we were next in line behind you two to be automatically put on your iPhone or iPad, but uh, they went with you two, and uh, we understand that. No hard feelings. But find us on iTunes. Give us a good rate and review if you like the show. If you don't, then, uh, you know, you can still speak your mind. We won't be too hurt. Pleasure Town is written and produced by Aaron Cahoe and Keith Ecker. This episode was written by Brooke Allen and was performed by Jillian Ray, Justin Kaufman, Jennifer Brandell, Dana Norris, and Kevin Gladish. Direction and sound design by Joe Dassault, with assistance by Patrick Burns. Our interns are me, Emily Modaf, and Allison Agumakun. Original music by River Rising's Megan Dagger and Tim Hazen, and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is a part of the WBEZ Podcast Network. Discover more excellent shows like Homemade Stories at wbez.org slash podcasts. Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend. Find out how you can join the story at wbez.org slash pleasure town. Hello, Pleasure Town listeners. This is Aaron. Keith is not here because this is a special message just for him. Um, some of you know him. A lot of you don't. But this is a very special week in Keith's life. He is getting married. So from all of us here at Pleasure Town, and especially me, Keith, you are an amazing person. And I wish you all of the joy and the good and all of those amazing things. You are a blessing to me, and I know you're a huge blessing to Mario. Congratulations to you both. Love you, man.